Happy Sabbath. I want to thank you for uh, the warm greeting in the cold weather that Honokaa has shared with me. Uh, this is my first time to be here on Sabbath. Uh, my name is Pastor Jesse Seibel. I have the best job in the world. I work with young people. I work with all kinds of young people. I work with young people who grew up in the church. I work with young people who only go to church during funerals. I work with young people that I pick up to go to the beach. I work with young people that I pick up at jail. I work with young people that Jesus has died for. And Jesus is interceding on their behalf. And uh, I, I tell you right now that I am a product of that gift of grace through Jesus Christ. I was a young person who, who was raised in an Adventist church in a good Adventist home. And by 18 or 19, I thought, I need to get out of this place. Is that me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to do that anymore. And, uh, and so I did. I left. I was too smart for the gospel. I was too big for, for God. And, and God tricked me. God gave me the opportunity to live on a little island in Micronesia. Yeah, I love to surf, and I still do. Uh, and uh, God actually opened the doors where one of my friends said to me one day, hey, you know what, this island of Oahu, there's good waves, but it's too crowded. Let's go somewhere else. And he told me about this little island that he heard of where only 8,000 people lived that, and only maybe one surfer that we knew of for sure lived there. And, and he said, and this spot, look at the picture. He showed me the picture. And I went, oh, man. He said, this is what you have to do to get there. You just have to say, I will teach grades 7, 8, and 9. That's it. You'll teach for six hours a day. You can surf before and you can surf after. And I went, sign me up. And a few months later, I walked off an airplane on the small island of Koshai. And I had a little badge that said, Jesse Seibel, missionary. And I looked down and I went, what did I get myself into? I signed up for our student missions program that our Adventist church has. I had signed up to be a missionary and I wasn't even a believer. And in those next few months, God changed my life. God broke me down. And I actually, I knew my Bible. I knew the answers. I knew the prophecies. I knew the texts. I knew our Adventist traditions that we hold so dear. I knew that all. And so I, my plan was just to go undercover and, and pretend, yeah? And just, just blend in. And about three months into it, I found myself, after teaching another Sabbath school class, on my knees, in tears, in my apartment, going, God, I don't believe in you, but I want something more in my life. And so today, I'm going to give you just this much, because that's all I want to give, just this much. And let's see what happens. And the next day, you know, God is gracious, and God is patient with us, amen? Because the next day, God said, okay, you trusted me with this much, how about this much? How about this much? And today I woke up this morning and God said, hey, Jesse, you trusted me yesterday with this much. How about this much? Yeah? Amen. And so we are all products of a God who loves young people. I don't care how old you are. You are young <laughs> in the ancient of days' eyes. Yeah? When he looks at us and we think we are speaking with eloquence and wisdom and experience, what does he hear? I'm sure it sounds like this. Wow. <laughs> yeah? It is a heavenly father looking down at his children who are in a mess. And saying, hey, I want to come and clean you up. I want you to live with me forever. Praise God for who he is today. Uh, I get to work with young people at our camp. 
uh, Camp Waianae. How many of you have been to camp? Anybody here been to Camp Waianae? Oh, man, God is moving in our camp. In the last three years, young people have been baptized. About 50 young people have given their lives to Jesus in, in baptism uh, in their local church, but through our camp ministries. We get young people who literally don't know it's a Christian camp all the time. It's my favorite. Sometimes uh, we, had, we had a young man from Hilo, actually. He came off the plane, and, and he told me, he said, hey, why does this list say I need my Bible? <laughs> and I love it. That means that God brought him here, yeah? You see, we don't do camp because kids are in love with Jesus Christ. We do camp because Jesus Christ is in love with kids. And we have young people that come from all walks of life. I hire young people who are not devout Christians and followers of Jesus. You know why? Because I know for a fact that if I put them in an experience where God will be using them to minister to young people, pretty soon, all of a sudden, they're saying truth. They're speaking words of witness. Yeah? They're giving their testimony and they're going, wow, maybe I do believe in this Jesus thing after all. And so every year we baptize staff and people ask me, how, why do you, how do you do this? How, and first of all, it's God. Jesus is working on their lives. The Holy Spirit's not me. But I say, but what we do do is we hire baptismal, uh, baptizable people. <laughs> When's the last time we put a, a baptizable person in charge of something at church? Yeah? Very often we're like, well, are they qualified, right? I'm going to tell you the truth. If God looked at my qualifications, I would not be standing here today. God did not call me or you because we are qualified, right? He did not call us because he needs us. He calls us because he loves us. And if you and I would just realize this, that we are called to work with God. Yesterday my father, he picked up my son. My son and daughter can't be here today. My wife, we are very happy about that. It's just us this weekend having a great time. Praise God for grandparents. Amen? Yeah, I just dropped them off at Tutu and Papa's house. My son, he got picked up from first grade yesterday by my father, and my, my friend sent me a picture of my father with my son. My father's a contractor. He builds things. Uh, and, and I am not a builder. I just fix things, you know, haphazardly. But my dad, he knows how to do it right and to code, and people actually pay him. He picked up my son, and there my son is wearing his rubber boots, his jeans, his belt, and his first quality building shirt. My father picked up my son so my son could work. My son was so excited. My son's got the biggest smile on his face, holding my dad's leg like, yes, I'm working with Papa. My father doesn't need my son to get the job done. In fact, I know for sure that my son will slow my dad down. Huh? <laughs> Papa, what is this? What is this? Papa, what is this? Can I use this? Can I do that? All the questions my son will ask. I know for a fact that my heavenly Papa doesn't need me to get the job done. But he loves me so much that he wants to take the time for he and I to have this relationship, yeah? That I can know who he is so we can live together forever. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer right now. We're going to open up God's word. And I want to ask you what a prophetic generation looks like. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, today we are standing still. We are worshiping you. We are recognizing right now that there is nothing good within us. That you are good. That you are the only one that all of our problems and our desires are found in you. 
So Lord, may we seek your face. Some of us today have come here because we need a safe place. Some of us have come here because we need healing. Today, some of us, Lord, have come here because we long for adventure and real life. Lord, today, as we open your word, may you open our hearts. and May we be changed and transformed because you are here. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. I believe we are part of a prophetic movement. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist minister, and I believe with all my heart that we have a message, a powerful message for this time. How many of you believe that? Anybody here? I think sometimes we are hesitant to talk like this because we do not understand what this means. I'm just going to check this. Let's try that. We're going to understand what this means. To be a prophetic people, to have a prophetic message, to actually say that we have a prophet. Sometimes we are hesitant to say this because we think we are boasting when we say this, huh? Sometimes when people hear us say this, we actually are boasting, huh? And right now I want to ask you to open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to the, the book of uh, Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. This closes the Old Testament. And there's a promise here in Scripture. There is a promise here in Scripture, a promise from God. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah, before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The, the, the promise here is that Elijah will come again, and Elijah will have a mission, right? His job will be, his function will be to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Perhaps the most problematic aspect of working with young people that I've found is this generational war that is raging in the home, parents and children. The closest tie in the family divided. Same thing in the church. When's the last time the church has gone all these young people. They just, they don't understand. And when's the last time a, a church, the young people have looked at their older elders and gone, all these old people, they just don't understand. And you've been there if you've seen some days in your life where you remember being a young person, right? And looking up to your elders and going, oh, they just don't get it, right? And now if you've got some experience, you can look down at maybe a few generations prior to you and go, these young people. They just don't know. And I find myself, I am 31 years old, somewhat in the middle of things. How many of you think 31 is old? Raise your hand. I should see six hands go up. 
Because <laughs> when you're 10, 8, 9, 7, man, 31 years old. So it all depends on which angle you're looking at, right? Which angle you're looking from. Now, some of you, how many of you think 31 is young? Raise your hand. One of those hands shooting up. So I stand in the gap, right? And I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations before where I'm looking at young people and I'm going, why do you do that? Why do you like that kind of music? Why do you like that kind of activity? Yeah. Why do you like this? And I can't tell you how many times I'm going, oh, yeah. Huh. I used to do the same thing when I was growing up. So what is happening here? There is just in our human nature a divide when it comes to generations, right? So God says what he is going to do in the last days is he is going to send his prophet Elijah, and Elijah will have a function. He will actually turn the hearts back towards the fathers to the young and of the young to their fathers. He will restore these warring generations and bring them united as one. What would that look like? What would it feel like to be a part of a place like that? Elijah. Elijah, to me, is the hero of the Old Testament. He is the prophet amongst prophets. Even in Jesus' day, uh, they thought he might be Elijah, right? And one of the things they asked of him was, show us a sign from where? From heaven. Yeah? Because you remember what Elijah did. What did Elijah do? He went on Mount Carmel. He versus 450 prophets of Astera and 400 prophets of Baal. 850 prophets, verse 1. He stood there and he said, people, how long are we going to wonder about this? If Baal is God, worship him. But if Yahweh is God, worship him. Now in your Bibles, many of you have in 1 Kings chapter 18, you have Elijah saying, if the Lord is God, very interesting aspect. We, we carry on this tradition in our English scriptures of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But this is not the word Lord. In fact, the word Lord in uh, the Old Testament actually is a lot like the word Baal. It just means Lord. It, and we use this word interchangeably in our own language. You know, Lord of the flies, Lord of the castle, yeah, Lord of the manor, right? I mean, it doesn't mean God. It just means someone with privilege and establishment and authority. And so Elijah is up on the mountain. He's saying, hey, if the Lord is God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is carrying on the tradition of the Hebrews. They would, they would see this word in their scriptures and they would not speak it because it was so holy. Yeah? And in some traditions, when they were making a new manuscript, they would see this word, they'd come to it and they'd go and they'd take a bath and they'd cleanse themselves. And then they'd come back and say, okay, now... With reverence, I'm going to write this word. You know what this word was? It's the word we say Yahweh. But this is just what we think it sounded like because we're not sure no one really said it. Yeah, It was just four letters. Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew alphabet. It was the tetragrammaton, they say. The four letters signifying the name of the one. And so Elijah is saying, hey, if this one, Y-H-W-H, is God, let's worship him. But if Baal is God, let's worship him, because shouldn't we worship God? Amen? And so here's what we're going to do. And you know the story. We, we grew up as children listening to it, perhaps. 
Elijah says, you go first. You have an altar. Whoever sends fire down will worship him. And Elijah has them go first. And Elijah, he's like some of my friends when they play basketball. Elijah's standing on the sideline going, <laughs> what? That's all you got? You know? Oh, oh, cry a little louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe your God is on vacation. Yeah? And, and these uh, false prophets, they are actually killing themselves. They are stabbing themselves, stabbing each other, slicing their wrists, bringing blood sacrifices, right, to the altar, crying out to a false god that will never give them life, will only take it. But Yahweh is different, amen? You see, when we come to Yahweh, we do not bring the sacrifice. We do not offer our blood or anyone else's. Yahweh will provide. And so on this Mount Carmel, Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord. It's broken down. And there he has a prayer of revival and reformation. He says, Lord, show these people today who you are. And the fire comes down. It licks up the sacrifice. It licks up the wood. It licks up the stones. It licks up all the water that Elijah had told them to pour it on, right? And people start to chant and proclaim, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. If you were Elijah that day, how would you feel? You know, we actually say, Have you ever had a mountaintop experience with God before? You know what we're referring to, right? Moments in Scripture like this, where you know that you are serving God, where you know that God is with you, that you know that you have access to this power that can transform lives. And if you've never had this experience before, my friends and family, this is the promise of God. Then the last days He will pour His Spirit upon us. Amen? This is what God wants to do in us and through us. And so now, Elijah, wow! If I was Elijah, I would have felt great that day. I would have said, God, thank you. I've been faithful, and you've been faithful. We've been faithful together. We worked together. You didn't need me. You didn't need me, but I'm here, and, I, and, I, and you got my back. And, and I don't know what I would have done, but I probably wouldn't have done this. You see, Elijah, in chapter 19, we find him not proclaiming the gospel from the mountaintops, we find him hiding in a cave. Why? Because he hears that someone is after his life. He has been on the run. He has been in opposition to everyone. The king, the soldiers, the false prophets, the corrupt priests for his whole life. But now he's hiding in fear. Why? Because he heard of a lady named Jezebel. And this lady wants to kill him. And so he goes on the run, and he's actually running away from Israel. And when we find him in this cave, he's actually on the borderlands of God's land, the borderlands of God's people. And the word of God comes to him in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? Has God ever spoken to you like that before? You find yourself in a place alone, afraid. You find yourself in a place of sin, in a place where you have backslidden into. You find your place 
dealing with a problem that you thought you overcame a long time ago. Maybe you find yourself in a place of pride and privilege, and still you're empty inside. And God whispers to you, what are you doing here? Listen to Elijah's response. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And listen very carefully to these words. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. What's Elijah's problem? Here's what I think might clue us in. Elijah says, I am the what? The only one. Wait a second. Really? Now, if you know the end of this story, God actually tells him later, listen, and by the way, I got 7,000, right? And in Hebrew terms, this just means a multitude that is in perfection, a complete, whole multitude. I got everybody I need to get this work done. But Elijah here is talking to God, the only one, saying, I am the only one. Everyone else, they gave up. Everyone else, they're not faithful. Everyone else, they don't have the truth. Everyone else, they haven't consecrated themselves to you. I am the only one left. And God in his mercy and God in his goodness has to speak truth to Elijah again. We'll skip through the story real quick. You know it. There's a whisper, right, to come out of the cave. But that's not, it's not with the fire, and it's not with the wind, and it's not with all the glamour and the power of God. Ellen White, she says something really neat here about this story. She says, in Prophets and Kings, uh, page for your reference, page 169, she says this. She says, it is not always the most learned presentation of God's truth that convicts and converts the soul. Did you hear that? Very often we think, oh, if we could just have better sermons, if we could just have better answers to people's questions, if we could have better sound texts to use. And these are all good things, amen? But she says it's not always the most learned and the most flashy and the most dynamic things that convert the soul. She says, not by eloquence or logic are men's hearts reached, but by the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit, which operate quietly yet surely in transforming and developing character. It is a still, small voice, the Spirit of God, that has the power to change a heart. I want to testify right now that I have never transformed a life. But I have been in the vicinity, and I have been a witness of when God is doing it right before my eyes. Do you know that Jesus did not even take credit for the conviction and the confession of Peter, when Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter's response was, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but who? But my Heavenly Father. Do you realize that God does not need us to transform someone's life? But God loves us so much that he wants us to know what kind of a God he is so that when he transforms someone's life, we can say, wow, this is the God I serve. And so Elijah hears a message, right? God says, what are you doing here? It repeats himself. He's like a broken record. I am the only one left. And God says in verse 
15 of chapter 19. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. I'm going to tell you right now, whenever I hear God speaking to me, it is not something I want to hear. Have you ever had this before? Where you're praying, Lord, just answer my prayer the way I want it answered. And, and Lord, just tell me something, what I already know, right? Very often, we actually come to people and we say, you know what, the Lord has told me something. And it just so happens, many times when we say this, it's what we already thought before the Lord told us. I'm going to tell you right now, if you already think it, God doesn't need to tell you. I come across scripture after scripture where God speaks to his people and he doesn't tell them what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. Elijah, go back. Go back. Stop running in fear. You have a job to do. You're running from the very people I told you to reach. You're scared of the very place where I planted you for a work to do. But he just doesn't, God doesn't send them just for some death sentence, you know. It's not a suicidal mission. He says, go back, and here's his mission. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi, over king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mehaloah, to succeed you as prophet. God tells Elijah, I got a job for you. You're not, you need to go back the way you came, and I want you to start anointing three people. Anoint. Do we anoint anymore in our church? Yeah, James, yeah, chapter 3. If anyone is sick, you should call the elders. They should pray for him, right, and anoint him. So we do. Do, do, do we recognize God's anointing in other ways in our church? Yeah, we have ordination of deacons, right, of elders, of ministers. But let me ask you a question. Are you anointed? I don't know. Sometimes we hear this and we go, oh, wait, well, what? Oh, I don't know. Because maybe we don't know what anointing is. What was anointing in the Old Testament time? It was a symbol that God's spirit was upon a person. They were chosen to lead others, right, into his kingdom. And so kings and prophets were anointed. They would take a flask of olive oil and they'd pour it upon someone's head and it would run over. And if you've ever had oil on you, yuck, right? It's hard to get off because the spirit, when it's upon you, it sticks, right? It's messy sometimes. It gets in places you don't want, right? But everyone knew, oh, you've been anointed, <laughs> yeah? You have been chosen by God. You have a job to do for him. The spirit is upon you. And so here we find Elijah being told to anoint not just two kings, but who? A prophet. Elisha to what? Replace you. If I had heard this from the Lord that day, hey Jesse, go find somebody to replace you. <laughs> I would have heard God say, you're fired. <laughs> you know what? I just used you. We did the whole fire thing on the mountaintop and now you're scared and you're in a cave. You know what? Fine. Give up. I give up on you too. That's what I would have heard in my human heart. Unless you understand how God works. You see, God always gives us a blessing so that we can what? Extend the blessing to someone else. In fact, he told us to Abraham, and, and through you, all the nations will be blessed, right? 
God never gives us a gift. He never gives us a truth. He never gives us a blessing that we are supposed to hold to ourselves so it's mine. He always gives us so that we can give to others. So when Elijah hears this, yes, in his heart he might be struggling, but listen to me very carefully, church. There's going to come a time and a place where you are going to feel replaced in your life. Where you are going to wonder why someone, wasn't, uh, someone didn't choose you to do the job. Why the church didn't ask you to, to serve as that position. Why they didn't ask you to speak. Why they didn't recognize you as how much work you have done. There's going to come a time in all of our lives where we feel replaced. But in our human heart, the one that desires more for ourselves, the recognition and the fame and the glory, in our humanness, in our fallenness, that's our first response. Unless we understand how God works. That God has chosen Elijah for this very purpose. To raise up a new generation. A generation that will remain faithful. A generation that will go the distance even when he feels like giving up. So he sends them to Elisha. Now how many of you uh, uh, have a place where you have to hire somebody in your job? Does anybody here hire people, interview people? Anybody? Yeah? Anybody had to do that before? When you interview someone, what do you do? You ask them questions about their qualifications and what they're good at and their experience. And ideally, especially if you're finding someone to replace you, you look for somebody who's good. Yeah? When I hire at summer camp, I have about 25 people who work there. About 16 of them are paid, and the other 10 or so are volunteers. And I look for people that can do stuff better than me because I don't want to get stuck doing it. Because if I have to do everything, oh my goodness, we're going to have problems. You, you get me cooking for you for 150 people, we will starve. Or better yet, spiritual disciplines, we will fast. <laughs> yeah. So I find people who are better than me. Yeah, so I can get them to replace me. So if you're a prophet, who are you going to look for? You're going to look for an up-and-coming prophet. And so here, Elijah, he walks down and he sees Elisha in verse 19 of chapter 19. So Elijah went down and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. And he was, he was prophesying and he was holding an evangelistic series. Yeah, What was he doing? Plowing. He's a farmer boy. Most likely, he doesn't even know how to read. You see, in ancient times, you only went to school if you were the best and the brightest. A rabbi would only choose disciples who could replace him. Remind you of anybody? Jesus, walking down the shore of Galilee, he says, hey, follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. Who's a fisher of men? Jesus. See, they're fishers of fish. But if you follow me, I see the potential in you to be like me. And so, of course, some of the disciples were actually fishing with their father. Why? Because that was their rabbi. They were learning to be like dad. They gave up their nets and they dropped everything. Because they, the, the miracle worker, the prophet, is calling us to be like him. Forget the fish. Let's go be like him. And so what happens? Elijah sees Elisha, and he's plowing. Really? This is him? And what does Elijah do? It says he was plowing, and Elijah went up to him, and he threw his cloak around him. 
I go to all kinds of places. I have lots of good friends. We're good friends, and you know, we share stuff, and I can ask my friends, can I borrow your car? Can I borrow this? But there's only one place in the world I can walk into the house. I can go inside the bedroom. I can walk into the closet, and I can say, yeah, that shirt looks nice. Take it off the rack, put it on, and walk out the door. You know whose house that is? No. Oh, that mine? Yeah, so two houses. <laughs> my father's. In fact, sometimes I walk back into his house a few months later, and he's like, hey, boy, that's my shirt. <laughs> oh, it is? Sorry. <laughs> Here, here's it back. But I can take it anytime I want. Why? Because that's my dad. If I went to your house, you might offer me some food. You might be very hospitable to me, but I would never walk into your closet and take your clothes. That would be rude. Right, Mark? I'm not going to do that, okay? <laughs> Mark and Miley, God bless them, just, just blessing us with hospitality. Thank you so much. And so what is, what is Elijah doing? He is getting his cloak and he is putting it around Elisha. What is he saying? You are my son. From now on, you're going to live with me. Here's Elisha plowing. He must look at himself and now be like, what in the world? He looks up. He sees the prophet. The prophet has put his cloak upon him. What is this? We say it in our language even to today. Who will carry the mantle? The mantle. Who will carry on the work? Who will carry on the legacy? Who will finish the job when you pass away? Church family, who is it? One day when God tells you, hey, it's time for you to go to sleep. Hey, it's time for you to rest. Hey, it's time for you to give up the power right now. Who are you going to place it on? You know, very often we have a hard time with this because we do not prepare young people for this very purpose. This is the reason why God has entrusted a younger generation to us. It's so that we can give them the message and the mission and the mantle. And they can say, oh, I didn't realize I, I had the qualifications to do this for the Lord. But we can say, you are anointed. Why? Because every time you and I say we are a Christian, what are we saying? We are saying we follow the Christ. We are the anointed ones. That was Jesus' uh, command to his disciples before he left. Do not leave this place until what? Until the Spirit comes upon you. And so every time you and I say we are Christians, what are we saying? We are saying we are anointed by the Holy Spirit for the work that God has given us. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us so much. And so here, Elisha he looks at Elijah and he tells him, okay, just let me go back home and kiss my mom and dad goodbye. And Elijah looks at him and says, go, what did I do to you? And I don't know if this is Elijah still struggling with this replacement thing. Elijah didn't realize God wasn't demoting him, amen? God was saying, hey, you need a break. You're tired. I got a better place for you. Come upstairs and live with me. But before you go, there's someone I want you to meet. You see, Elijah, really awesome. His name is Elijah. It means, my God is Jah. And Jah is just, it's not, Bob Marley did not coin this. This isn't a reggae term. This is a biblical term. It is short for Yahweh. And so everywhere Elijah went, they said, hey, there's, my God is Yahweh. Even when they didn't worship Yahweh. Everyone who said Elijah was confessing that Baal is not God, 
Yahweh is. That's why Ahab and Jezebel couldn't stand the guy. Every time they thought of him, wow, we have 850 prophets. Good job, right on. Except for that prophet, Yahweh is my God. Oh, going to kill that guy. Got to get rid of that guy. And I'm going to tell you right now that when you are wearing the name of God, you will walk into places. Just because of your presence and your testimony, it will remind people that Yahweh is their God. And so you might meet opposition. You might meet people who want to persecute you. But Yahweh is your God. And so you can stand there versus all the frost, false prophets of this world. And you can stand there because your God will bring the fire. Amen? No matter what your altar looks like, in disrepair, broken, you can even add water to this fire. It's not going to put it out. So here Elijah meets Elisha. You see, Elijah, he knows who God is. And I'm going to tell you right now that I am a recipient of an Elijah ministry where elders in my church and in my family looked at me and said, Jesse, Yahweh is God. You might be in search of this. You might be in search of that. But Yahweh is God. And so I learned from them that actually Yahweh is God, not fame, not fortune, not pleasures of this world. I saw by their words and by their testimony of their lives that Yahweh is God. They know who God, they know who God is. And I didn't. I had to learn from them. But Elisha, what does he have to teach Elijah? Elisha's name means, my God saves. Can you see Elijah in a cave right now, afraid for his life, saying, and I'm the only one left, and I might as well die too. And, and, and God in his goodness and graciousness comes down and says, Elijah, there's somebody I want you to meet. You see, you know who God is, church. But very often, we forget that God still saves. And so Elijah, yes, he's a generation that knows who God is. But we need a younger generation that's coming up not knowing who God is so that we can instruct them and we can train them and we can mentor them. And when we see God transform their life, we remember that God still saves. So what does Elisha do? He does not go back home. He goes over to his plow and he breaks it. I'm going to tell you right now, if you ever give a young person something to do in your church, they're going to do something crazy. They're not going to ask permission. They're not going to get board approval. They're just going to do something that's reckless. And I can't tell you how many times I see a young person doing something and I'm like, oh, because I wouldn't do that. I would sell the plow <laughs> and use the money. Or I would start a ministry called learning how to farm organically. Yeah? <laughs> Come on. That's reckless. But he breaks it and he turns it into a pile of wood. And then he goes over to his oxen and he kills them. And I don't know about you, but that's really hard to do first off. Right? And second off, that's really, who's all, those aren't yours. Those are your dad's. You, you don't own those. How often do we as a church see someone doing something because God has put this mission in their heart? God has let them on fire and we're like, mm, did you get permission to do that? Church, please, please don't try to put out their fire. You know why? Because you can't. The Bible is a beautiful story. 
It has the story of Mount Carmel. Well, we know God is responsible for the fire. And then now here in the farm, in the field, it has another beautiful story. And we know God is responsible for the fire. Elisha is not being reckless. He is making a stance. He is making a decision. He is dedicating everything he is to his Lord. He can't go back. One day when the time gets tough, and he's like, man, this Elijah guy is kind of crazy. I should go home and farm again. Oh, I can't. <laughs> my plow, <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> and my oxen, they're gone. I've given myself wholly and completely to God. So what would it look like? A generation that knows who God is, speaking truth, standing up amongst all the false truths of this earth and saying Yahweh is God. What would it look like if that generation took a younger generation and said, and you are anointed to do God's work. Here is the message. Here is the mission. Here is the mantle. What would that look like? If you take Elijah, my God is Yahweh. And you take Elisha, my God saves. And you put them together. Let's do some English. Compound sentence, right? My God, Yahweh, saves. What do you get? You get Yeshua. You see, when an angel came to Mary, and she said, and the angel said, blessed are you among women. And the angel said, and you shall call him Jesus. The angel actually wasn't speaking in the Greek, which is Jesus. And the angel was actually speaking in Mary's tongue, which is most likely Aramaic. And, and, and the, the name that the angel gave to Mary was, anybody know? Yeshua. Yeshua. So what happens when a church is not divided because they're arguing about generational things? What happens when a church is not hoarding power, but it bestowing it upon those who are also called to preach the message? What happens when a church is standing out in boldness, in truth, when the rest of this world is cowering in fear? What happens when a church is looking at a young person and saying, and you have something to teach us? This church is wearing the name Jesus on it. Because my friends and family, Yahweh saves. I want to close with this testimony. My... Uh, my calling in life, I believe, is to reach young people. And what has happened is I've had to work with the world that young people work in. And, and, and I, I, I consider myself not just called. I actually consider myself pro professional. So I, I, I read and I study and I learn how to, how to reach this culture of young people. I mean, if I was going to China, I would learn Chinese culture. And so when I am a missionary going to young people who are not in the church, I am learning their culture. And, and so I think I'm kind of good at this. Except every once in a while, God reminds me, no, you're not. And no, he reminds me most. He reminds me most in my own home. With my own Elisha's. Every night, before we go to sleep, we pray. I tuck my son in. His name is Noah. 
His sister loves to sleep with him. He, she's three. He's six. And so they have a bunk bed, and she has her own bed, but they just love to sleep together. And, and so I, I, I'm praying with them, and we bow our heads to pray. And uh, they always, you know, argue at first. I want to pray. I want to pray. And, you know, we go, okay, you can pray. You can pray. We can all pray. And then here we go. And we pray, and we say amen. And then I start to walk out, about to turn off the light. And my son says, Daddy, Daddy, I don't believe in God. What? <laughs> now, me and God have had serious conversations about this. Really serious. Because I am working with young people literally all around the world. And there's times I was gone from home four months this year. Now, God blessed, and actually I was able to bring my family with me very often. But I always have this prayer, God, you know, and I'm working with kids, and I know you love kids, and I love these kids too, but God, what about my kids? Are my kids going to be there? Are my kids going to know who you are? Because if not, I shouldn't be here right now, God. So me and God, we always have this conversation. So here I am, turning off the lights. We just had prayer meeting, and, and I'm clicking the lights, and my son is saying, Daddy, I don't believe in God. And I'm going, what? What? I'm a pastor. My son's an atheist. At this time, he was only five years old. He's a five. I failed. I give up. And, and so I, I had to ask him, no, why not? And he said, Daddy, because I've never seen him. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, he's, he's an ag agnostic then. He's the <laughs> maybe he's just not sure. We're going somewhere. We're getting somewhere. And so, and so I, I say, Noah, Daddy believes in God. I'm just telling him what I do. I really do. And then my son, the five-year-old theologian, goes, have you ever seen him? Now, I thought about this moment, you know, a lot, actually a lot. In my prayer time with God that night, I stayed up most of the night just praying with God and, and writing things down. And I realized, you know, my son hears a lot of stuff in this world. Easter bunnies, Santa Claus, boogeyman, <laughs> men at hoonies, you know, stuff on TV. You know, even though we don't have cable TV, he sees it somewhere, who knows where. And so this whole world is impressing on him what is truth and what is real. And little by little, he's finding out, hey, not everything I hear is true. So I got to find out. And so he's finding out, you know, some of those things maybe not so real. Well, what about this God thing daddy told me about? And so here he is asking me, daddy, do you believe in God? And you guys, I said yes. But then he asked me, do you, have you seen God? And should I lie? <laughs> and this is the blessing God gave to me that I shared with him. I said, you know, Noah, no, I've never seen God before. But I've seen what God has done. In fact, Noah, you know what? Every time I look at you, I know there's a God. Every time I see you, I know that God is good. 
You know, that night, there was one person in that room, for sure, who believed in God. You know who it was? Me. You see, my son, he doesn't know Yahweh. But God has entrusted me with him so I can teach him who Yahweh is. But there are times in all of our lives where we're tired, where we want to give up, where we think we're the only one, where we think we're failures. And God actually has to remind us that what? He still saves. My church family, thank you so much. My church family, we serve a God who is more than we could ever ask or imagine. We couldn't make this up. You see, all of humanity has wanted to appease this God and do something. Does he, does he want our blood? Does he want our children? Does he want our stuff? And what does the God of heaven say? No, all I want is you. And so I'm going to do everything I can in my power to choose you. Will you please choose me? Today I want to ask you to stand and sing a hymn that was written long ago, Draw Me Nearer, hymn number 308, 306. And as you stand and sing this song, my prayer is that you say to God, here I am. I'm not going to be afraid. Use me to anoint someone else so that they know that you are coming soon and they are called to do your work.